Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums of all time. And after a break for the summer, we are so glad to be back on the horse and mounting our second season. Season one was really, really, truly an adventure for Bill and me. Besides digging into the music, we learned how to podcast, something neither of us had done before, knew anything about really, except, you know, listening. But to put one together is a whole nother experience. Dude, you had to say like back on the horse and mounting a second season, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's where you go? <laughs> Can I tell you? That? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I'm in the middle of a Game of Thrones binge. I've never seen the show before. So I've literally watched 68, no, 71 episodes of the show in the last uh, three weeks. So yeah, there's a lot of horses and and there's definitely a lot of mounting yes yeah well big big game of thrones fan both the books and this and the series so completely uh understand the uh the immersion uh well speaking of last season tone you know we had just ridiculous outcome from what we started from so you know you and i did this as just something fun for you and i to kind of enjoy talking and enjoying music together and we went from what we started as just a, a side you know, fun project to something where we've got 49 countries that have streamed and downloaded our, our podcast and over 2000 downloads and, you know, basically more than 150 downloads an episode. So just really, really crazy success from not a whole lot of promotion and something where we're just having a lot of fun. Indeed. You told me this morning about the 49 countries and it Really, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I, I was explaining. I was telling my mother-in-law Carol and Colleen about this, and they kept asking me, "How do these? How does someone in Nepal find your podcast?" I said, "I don't know. I have no idea." It took a lot of work to figure out how to put it on like every single possible podcast aggregator, and we are like everywhere. So mm-hmm. that that that's I think maybe part of it, but I think some of it is just we've been blessed. So over the break, we thought about the shows that we wanted to do this season, and we realized that last season we had the frame of Bill's personal top 20 ranking of albums, and and we weren't sure we wanted to continue going down that route. Um, To be candid, you know, it kind of left me out of some of the choosing because it was really Bill's list. So uh, Bill, graciously, thank you for allowing me to have some say and some input into what we talked about or what we're going to talk about. Well, this is our podcast and it's definitely something that I I couldn't imagine doing without you. It's, it's, you know, it's part of the reason why it's fun. Uh, What's really the only reason it's fun, Uh, but allowing us to broaden our scope and to do music that we just both like that might not even be on the Rolling Stone top 500 list allows us to really talk about stuff that's current stuff that we love and bring those things to our audience. So we're really looking forward to season two and, and really having fun with a, a pretty cool list of artists and albums that we've, we've got mapped out. Yeah, I am excited about uh, what we're going to be talking about in season two. So why don't we kick it off there? 
So today's album is 10 by Pearl Jam. 10 was released on August 27th of 1991. On the Rolling Stone Top 500 list in 2003, it was number 207. In 2012, it was number 209. And in 2020, it rose to number 160. It has sold a total of uh, more than 15.7 million copies worldwide. Most of that in the U.S. with 13 million units being sold in the United States. Uh, coincidentally, 13 million of those copies were sold prior to 1993. So this album really was a phenomenon of the early 90s. Well, and it's it's really interesting, Tony, that like since the inception of our podcast, this is now our third album that we're doing from 1991. So clearly a, a year in music that meant a lot to both you and I, but it's also a, a, a year in music that there was a lot going on. So it was it's a fun year in music. Look, we were both 20 at the time. I mean, that's got to be peak music consumption or music discovery age, right? 100%. 100%. So what was going on in 91? Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? So 1991, George H.W. Bush, Herbert Walker Bush was the president. So uh, the senior Bush was the president. And let me just maybe talk about it from the perspective of what it was like living in 1991. So if you wanted to record something in 1991, you were getting your cassette tape out or your VCR tape. And VCRs were expensive. You know, they, you were dropping 400, 500 plus dollars on a VCR to just record stuff with your commercials that you'd have to fast forward and deal with all of that. If you wanted to go somewhere, you didn't have Google Maps or Waze or Apple Maps. You were pulling out your gas station map and trying to figure it out, or you were asking somebody for directions and you got really crappy directions with horrible landmarks. You know, when you're in your car, you're rolling down those manual windows because most of the cars didn't even have standard power windows in them. First website on the World Wide Web and World Wide Web really becoming widely available. This was really even barely available dial modem service. You know, we, you weren't even getting like AOL, like at this point for most people, this is just barely scratching the start of it. Most people weren't having mobile phones. I didn't have a mobile phone at the time. And the people who were carrying devices like that, most of them were pagers, you know, trying to find people was definitely fun. It was a tumultuous time. Recession had just ended. The economy wasn't incredibly stable. The Soviet Union dissolved. The Gulf War was was both going on and finishes and Desert Storm. You had Rodney King situation in LA being beat by the police. In the movies, you've got Silence of the Lambs and Point Break and Terminator 2 and Thelma and Louise and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And on TV, you've got Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, Home Improvement, Silk Stockings, The Commish. And you've got the Giants beating the Bills in the Super Bowl. Wide right, Scott Norwood. So 91 was a really interesting year. And it was, like you said, it was right in the heart of our college years, right in the middle of, you know, start of our 20s. So it was a very interesting time for you and I. Yeah, our transition to adulthood. You know, you reminded me of something you were talking about cassette tapes, and we would be negligent not to mention our mixtape contest that we closed out our season one with. We're going to do a special edition show to talk about the submissions from our mixtape contest. So we want to thank all of the listeners that submitted and can't wait to talk about those at a future show. All right. So you were talking about what was going on in 91, and I'm going to talk about just uh, the year in music. 
as this is our third show for 91, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'll point out some of the number one albums from the time and, and really the ones that dominated the charts. So Vanilla Ice was number one for eight weeks. Mariah Carey was number one for 12 weeks. Uh, Garth Brooks was number one for nine weeks. So those were the dominant albums of 1991 at the time when uh, 10 was coming out. You know, there were some other more rock albums uh, that were topping the charts. Octung Baby came out that year, and that was a number one for one week. Guns N' Roses was number one with Use Your Illusion 2 for a couple of weeks. And Van Halen's Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge was number one for three weeks. So there was an, oh, and, and I'm sorry, an R.E.M. was number one for two weeks as well without of time. So um, that's what was going on as far as albums go. Uh, any other cool albums you want to mention? So I, I would just mention two albums uh, that were meaningful to me back in, in 91. Uh, not because I was a huge fan, but just because some of the songs had a lasting uh, impact. So Metallica, the Black Album, that album is the, is the album that gave us the entry music for Mariano Rivera that we got, we got to listen to for the, the, the length of his career, Enter Sandman. Um, and phenomenal album. You had that, you had Sabah True, Nothing Else Matters on that album, just a phenomenal album. Um, and then LL Cool J, you know, I, I have to mention that because that Mama Said Knock You Out album, just a phenomenal album. Now, were you a listener of that album at the time or did you come to it later? 100% I was a listen to, listener of that album at the time. LL's from Queens, I'm from Queens, huge LL fan. All right, cool. Uh, I'll mention some of the top singles from the year. The top four singles, according to Billboard for 1991, were Everything I Do, I Do It For You from Brian Adams. I think that's the, was it the Robin Hood soundtrack? It was the Robin Hood soundtrack, yep. Um, I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. And I want to sex you up to the heart, tick tock, you don't stop. And I challenge you not to have that earworm in your head after I just mentioned it and Bill sang it for you. Uh, there's also Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now from CNC. Not Are you going to give one. us that? Not sing- I'm not singing that one. <laughs> and then Rush Rush from Paula Abdul. So those were the top four singles the year that 10 came out. So Bill, why don't you tell me about 10 and your history with that album and Pearl Jam in general. So 1991, we're at Rutgers and I think and we've, and we've talked about 91 a few times, so I'll just, you know, kind of get to it quick. You know, I, I don't think I could have gone anywhere out or hanging out with, with my roommates or friends at the time and not hear Pearl Jam, Nirvana, the spin doctors or blues traveler. I think th- those four groups I was, it was like the soundtrack to, to those couple of years for me for college. So that Pearl Jam 10 album was everywhere for me. I heard it a million times and it was something that, you know, we, we'd play just in, in my apartment, like before we were going out or hanging out or whatever. So heard it a million times, loved the album. Yeah, you mentioned that. And that's true. Those four really were sort of the, uh, I don't know what you call it, but the the gospel of the time. As far as my personal history goes with the album, of course I had it. Of course I listened to it. And and with Pearl Jam, I had all five albums, studio albums that they put out in the 90s, but they fell off for me in the aughts. And I really only uh, 
picked them back up with Lightning Bolt uh, a few years ago. And really, that was at the behest of my brother, Rick, who invited me to a sh- to really my first true Pearl Jam show uh, on the Lightning Bolt tour. So I don't have like a long history or really a deep history with Pearl Jam. I saw them in Hawaii by coincidence because they were opening up for U2. Uh, and then I saw that show at Fenway on the Lightning Bolt tour a few years ago. And then we went uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Rick and Dave. So I, was, I wasn't I was a Pearl Jam fan. I had the, the five albums from the 90s. That's still sort of a remnant of the Columbia House uh, days when, you know, you basically had, you know, every CD that came out. Nine million CDs. Yeah, that, yeah exactly. So I wouldn't say that I was a Pearl Jam fan at all. I would kind of cast myself similarly. I, I enjoyed their music. I had probably the first four studio albums and I, I kind of agree. They fell off a little bit for me after, after the nineties. Uh, not, not that, you know, I didn't enjoy those albums. Not that I didn't, you know, ever think of them or hear their songs and whatnot. It's just, you know, wasn't something that was front and center to listen to their new stuff. And I think I kind of missed the boat. Yeah. Well, not only not listening to their new stuff, but, I stopped, you know, I didn't listen, hear their old stuff. For me, in my musical experience since the turn of the century, they really completely fell off the radar. I wasn't even hearing 10 or I guess, no, you, you hear um, some of the Vitology stuff, but I didn't really hear much of anything else besides Better Man and Corduroy. All right. So I guess that's our personal histories. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the album itself. Um, the band at the time for 10 con- that uh, that recorded the album uh, consisted of Jeff Ament uh, on bass, uh, Stone Gossard on rhythm guitar, Dave Krusen on drums, Mike McCready on lead guitar, and Eddie Vedder on vocals. Rick Parashar was the producer, and the album was recorded in, a, in one month. You know, you think about some of these albums that take, you know, we always go back to rumors and how long that took. And, yeah. and meanwhile, these guys... Put, formed the band and put this album together in exactly one month. They recorded at London Bridge Studios in Seattle, and it was released on August 27th in 91, as you meant, previously mentioned. Um, before, there are, oh. never mind, before never mind. You mean, wait a minute, they were ahead of St. Kurt and, and Nirvana? 10 was released before never mind. I'll tell you, I saw, you know, I vaguely remember, and this probably isn't the right spot for this, but I vaguely remember, you know, the the uh, rivalry between the two bands and Kurt was kind of a jerk. It seemed he, he to me was. like he was really kind of jerky to these guys. He, he was. He basically played them as just like commercial sellout type guys and, you know, complained that he didn't like their music. But, you know, he, he backed off that and they, and it, it seems like him and Vetter became closer, you know, shortly before he Cobain died. Um, yeah. So I, I think uh, I think they kind of buried the hatchet on some of that. And Eddie Vetter always kind of was above the fray with some of that stuff. He's, yeah. I think he handles stuff like that very, very well. Agreed. So uh, the album had 11 tracks, not 10, as you might have thought from the based on the title. I know I just, you know, never thought about it deeply, but I just kind of assumed there were 10 tracks and you know the album was called 10 uh, the album took a while a little while to get traction uh it wasn't until the end of 92 when it really exploded and at that point it had reached number two on the charts 
and even having uh, a couple of hit singles in Alive, Even Flow, and Jeremy. Eventually, Jeremy was nominated for two Grammy Awards in 1993. So let me talk about the album art a little bit. And this is one that I think I didn't quite understand the imagery. I, I think the my interpretation of the imagery wasn't what it actually is. So I thought it was just a superimposed thing. It, it actually was a, a cutout that was designed by Jeff Ament. Uh, and he was the art director, effectively, for the album cover, and he created this big thing for the for the band to stand in front of, with the unified hands up in front in front of it. I always thought it was just something they overlaid the picture on top of. It's actually a picture of them in front of this big, huge uh, design, and and it's really kind of an amazing piece of artwork when you think about it from from that perspective. You know, we both uh, recently watched the Cameron Crowe documentary on Pearl Jam, and it was interesting to learn that Amit and uh, Vetter really bonded uh, when Eddie joined. They really bonded over their love of art and creating art and clearly are both big basketball fans, as as we'll talk about a little bit later. <laughs> clearly, yes. And, and there's a few tie-ins to basketball. Absolutely. So when you consider the full-size image and what they were doing, you can actually see the you know almost like a a huddle imagery going on there and and really the sports connection that they have and the art connection that they have comes through in the intended full-sized image all right so Tony, i think that covers the uh a little bit about the album and the art why don't, why don't we talk a little bit just about the artist's background uh, and then we'll jump into the something you might not know Does this that sound is really like a plan? oh this I, I can't wait to hear this stuff because it's really I think it's pretty cool. So I'm looking forward to it. I, I agree. All right. So let's start out with a little bit about the history and how they became Pearl Jam. So I'm going to start with a, a group called Green River. And Green River was a band that was made up of several people, but I'm only going to highlight a few of them. Jeff Ament, Stone Gossard, and a guitarist by the name of Bruce Fairweather. And they were in the band together. The band had some local success. And eventually they wound up leaving that band and that band morphed into another band, which is really kind of thought of as the real starting point for Pearl Jam. And that band's name is Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone was made up again of Ament, Gossard, Fairweather, but there was a, a new lead singer to Mother Love Bone and his name was Andy Wood. And Andy Wood was incredibly popular in the Seattle music scene. He had so many friends and so many people who thought he was just an absolute rock star. And he was the type of person. And, you know, you mentioned the, the Pearl Jam 20 documentary, you know, they talk about Andy Wood and how much he's, you know, really lit up a, 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 even the smallest venue because he just had this big rock star persona. Well, Andy Wood had, was friends with all of these guys. He was actually roommates with Chris Cornell, the lead singer from Soundgarden. So this whole scene was very tight and very close. Well, in late 1990, Andy Wood died of a drug overdose. And the band Mother Love Bone kind of drifted apart. And you have Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament kind of off doing their own things. And, and Gossard connects with Mike McCready, who's, who he's friends with. And they start putting around writing songs. And McCready really convinces Gossard, hey, you know, we really need Jeff to, to join us. We need him to come back. And they, they convince Amit to join back and, and, and start up a group with them. 
and they decide they're going to create a demo tape, an instrumental demo, demo tape, and they're going to look for a lead singer and a drummer. So they get their buddy, Matt Cameron, who was the drummer for Soundgarden at the time, to play drums on a demo for them. And they create this demo tape. And this demo tape gets passed around to a few of their friends, including the former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer, Jack Irons. And Jack Irons was in San Diego and buddies with Eddie Vedder. And they play pickup basketball every week. And at one of these pickup basketball games, Jack Irons hands Eddie Vedder a tape and says, hey, you should really listen to this. this. These guys are really good and they're looking for a lead singer. You know, you should listen to this and maybe you can do something with it. So Eddie Vedder listens to the tape, loves it, writes lyrics you know, to the instrumental songs, overdubs it and sends it back. The guys in the band love it. They fly him up to, to uh, Seattle. They start practicing. Inside of days, they're doing gigs. And as Tony mentioned before, shortly thereafter, they recorded. So they went from zero to 60, like in nothing. So that, that band came together just through connections and friends. And that's, that's really very much what the Seattle scene was like. We talked about that you know, a bit with Nirvana and their connections and how they, how they came together. But it was really very much how the Seattle scene was. And there's, there's even a few quotes about the Seattle scene and the Seattle sound that I think were really interesting. So one of the, re the reporters uh, for the Seattle music scene, uh, this gentleman, Charles Cross, said, you know, a lot of bands skipped Seattle. So they really bred their own sound. And, and, and that sound came out of all of these bands being friends, going to each other's shows and kind of building on each other's music and, and then connecting each other with different components. Oh, you need a drummer. Oh, you need a lead singer. Oh, you need a this. And, and that's how a lot of these bands came together. And I just, I find it fascinating because I didn't really know that very much before doing some of this research. Yeah. And you know that, uh, first of all, I commend anyone to watch the, uh, Pearl Jam 20 documentary. It was really fascinating. One of the things that was interesting was Cornell talking about how, their camaraderie and support of each other was really odd or not common. And like whenever they would talk to musicians from other towns, they'd just talk about how hyper competitive everyone was and how they would actively try to take each other down because somebody else's success was your failure. And that spirit did not seem to be, you know, again, according to this documentary, it didn't seem to be the case in Seattle at the time. The other thing I've mentioned is I just distinctly remember coming to college and freshman year didn't know any indie alt music really. I mean, just on the fringes, I guess, of the stuff that was already kind of breaking mainstream like R.E.M. and U2. And I distinctly remember seeing stickers for Mother Love Bone and having no idea what the hell that was. So uh, it took you know, 30 some odd years for me to realize, oh, that's what that was. So yeah, Mother Love Bone definitely was a thing, even in New Jersey in 1989, 1990, 91. All right. So I guess that takes us to our next segment, something you might not know. I'm going to talk about some more commonly known stuff, but figured that uh, in the interest of completeness, we'd mention it. So when the Guys got together and they had Eddie come up. First of all, Bill was talking about that first week when Eddie came up. It's really, it's no joke. He flew up on a Sunday. They'd never met. He'd sent them back the demo with his 
uh, lyrics overdubbed on top. They liked it. They bring him up, as Bill said, and he shows up on Sunday. And by Saturday night, they're playing their first gig. And we saw a video of not the first gig, but in the movie, they show video of the second gig. And they're doing a live pretty much as it's recorded on the album, basically within 10 days of meeting each other. Which is crazy. And it's also so interesting to see Vetter perform that. And he was, you know, he seemed not comfortable yet on stage. He's got his hair in front of his face. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. So again, we commend you to watch uh, the 20 documentary. So that group, that uh, group of guys, uh, you know, uh, Ament uh, and Gossard and, and Vetter and uh, Cruzen, who was, what's his name? Dave Cruzen? Is that the name? Dave Cruzen. Dave Cruzen ended up becoming the drummer um, and McCready. They were performing under the name Mookie Blaylock. And for those of you who aren't basketball fans, Mookie Blaylock was a prominent college and professional basketball player. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure which of them was a Mookie Blaylock fan or they just like Mookie's name, but that was the name they chose for their band. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Vetter's from Chicago and mm-hmm. was, a, was a Bulls fan and was a Mookie Blaylock fan. Well, then there you go. So that's uh, most likely the origin. So um, something that you might not know is Mookie Blaylock was the original name of the band. Uh, I'll do another piece on another band that predated Pearl Jam. So Bill mentioned how the guys were all friends with Chris Cornell and uh, Soundgarden. And the drummer for Soundgarden was Matt Cameron. And they decided to do a side project really as a you know, maybe a healing project. I, I don't want to call it necessarily a tribute, but it was really uh, because they're all friends and Andy Wood passing away was a, a, a significantly traumatic event for all of them. So Cornell and Cameron are working with the guys who uh, are working with McCready and Amit and Gossard, and they're working on some songs and they're calling the project Temple of the Dog, Temple of the Dog. And, um, and, you know, and they're working on this project and they're writing songs and they're recording some music. And at this time, Eddie is, you know, being is auditioning for the band and he's coming up and they just, said, just came up. Yep. <laughs> so they said, hey, we got a new singer. Chris, you mind if he sings a song uh, with, with you know, you? one of the Temple of the Dog songs <laughs> with, with you? And just to really get back to the collegial nature of this. Soundgarden was successful. Chris Cornell was already Chris a Cornell star. Was a, was a big singer and yeah. like a, a, and a crazy awesome lead singer to just in his own. And then to just welcome a dude he doesn't know who isn't hasn't recorded anything and just say, "Yeah, I'll share this song with you." And they It's a great song. <laughs> I'll tell you such I, a great I, song. I, and shouts to my good buddy, Diana Gendron. I never hear Hunger Strike without thinking of Di. So Di, if you're listening, shouts to you and Hunger Strike. But it's just really an incredible song. And I just remember, like, because they sound a little similar there. They sing in a similar style. I think Chris sings a little higher register, but... He, it, yeah, Cornell's Cornell's higher. Uh, yeah. Vetter's more of a baritone. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. got the the lower register. So yeah, but because you don't know 
you know, what's going on. It was a little confusing just, you know, not seeing a video and really just trying to parse out what I'm, what you're listening to. So that's uh, Temple of the Dog. And really the first recording that Eddie is on is not a Pearl Jam record, but it's actually Hunger Strike, Temple of the Dog. Well, and it's, it's crazy that, you know, it winds up being the majority of Pearl Jam on that because Matt Cameron in 98 becomes the full-time official drummer for Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got, you know, Amant, Gossard, Vetter, and, and Cameron on yeah. Temple of the Dog. And it's basically, you know, majority of the, what would become the classic Pearl Jam long-term lineup. Mm-hmm. So Tone, those, those are two great pieces of, of history with, with Pearl Jam. So thanks for sharing those things. And I, those were things that I had, I hadn't known coming in, but I definitely, you know, went doing research, found, found those and was like, wow, that's oh. really cool. So no, I knew the no, wait, the Bill, 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 hold on. Before you do that, I totally missed the the big one. Y- yeah, I know. The, the, the album name itself, right? Yeah. So, so, so since I missed it, Bill, why don't you bring it home? So Tony mentioned before that, you know, he kind of connected the dots with the number of tracks on the album. And I, and I, I personally, I had no idea why they named the album 10 ever, like none. And we're watching each watching that documentary, the Pearl Jam 20. And, you know, there's a clip at the somewhere closer to the end of, of the uh, documentary where they ask Eddie Vedder, uh, you know, they talk about Moogie Blaylock and, and whatnot. And, and he said, well, you know, we had to get a hat tip into Mookie Blaylock somewhere. So we named the album 10 because that was Mookie Blaylock's number. And it really goes to show you that they weren't even that serious about this album. Uh, there's numerous quotes over many years of different band members saying that they just recorded the album because they were all brand new to each other and they just wanted the tour. They wanted and the they, tour. Exactly. Yeah. They just wanted to get something out there. So they had something to go play and tour with. So they hadn't really given a whole lot of thought into the band name, the album name. They just were using it as a vehicle to tour. And uh, little did they know that they would uh, end up selling 15.7 million copies of this thing. They at the time said that if they sold 100,000, they would have thought that was an incredible success. All right. So, Tone, I'm going to take my something you might not know in a slightly different direction. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the demo tape. Uh, so we talked about the demo tape earlier where Ament and Gossard and uh, Matt Cameron and Mike McCready recorded an instrumental demo tape. It made it to Eddie Vedder. And what Eddie Vedder did with it is he created a trilogy, which is called the, the Mama Son or Mama Son, depending on how it's alluded to, kind of both, um, trilogy. And there were three songs. He condensed it to three songs that originally were titled Dollar Short, Egyptian Crave, and Trouble Times. And Dollar Short became Alive, Egyptian Crave became Once, and Trouble Times became Footsteps. And Footsteps, I believe, is the B-side to Jeremy uh, on one of the releases. So that trilogy had a whole story story arc it's kind of a mini opera that vetter created and it's all about a character and it's about the character that's in alive the 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 son in alive who's got this kind of twisted parentage and an ancestral relationship with his mother he finds out that his his father who he thinks is his father isn't really his father which is kind of really 
uh, a true story from that component of the story with Eddie Vedder is he didn't know his real father uh, as as a, a, a young man and kind of fa- found out who he was later. So that's p- you know part of the, the the story was true. Uh, you know, obviously the in- incest part was not, but um, part of the story was true. And then he takes that character into once, and the character becomes a serial killer that is basically just you know broken by the things that have gone on. And then in the last of the trilogy, Footsteps, the character's locked up in jail and and you know heading towards execution and thinking back on on what happened. It's it's a really awesome little mini opera that that Vetter put together for that demo tape. So I, I mean I completely understand a why they picked him just because Eddie Vetter's vocals are amazing and he's awesome, but he's a really good songwriter too, and he did a tremendous job putting that little arc together. All right, well then thanks Bill for uh, that something you didn't know. It's really uh, really interesting and incredible that Eddie put that together in a couple of weeks, just sitting in his apartment, listening to this music that from guys that he didn't know. So and he didn't know at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so that brings us to our track review. We're going to talk about the 11 tracks on the album 10. The tracks begin or the album begins with Once, written by Stone Gossard. And uh, Bill, what do you have? Do you have any thoughts on Once? Yeah, so Once is just an amazing song that opens up kind of slow. You get the bongos and the bass, and it builds to this fast rock story that tells the story of that serial killer uh, from from the the you know that that trilogy. So I, I think it's just an amazing song, um, and it, it definitely kicks the album off like really really well. I think the choice works, but it is uh, interesting where it does start with like almost it feels like 15 seconds i didn't time it but like a a 10 second prelude that's really quiet and i wonder you know is that a setup to you know like almost luring you into what's going on do i need to turn this up and then they blow your doors and off and then they blow your doors off exactly yeah, yeah. no I, I think it's actually really cool yeah yeah so next up is even flow and, and even flow for me is like one of the anthem songs from this album that was played everywhere, you know, dur- during the nineties. The, the uh, it's a great song. Uh, you know, it's, it's about the experience of being homeless and you just get this amazing vocal from Vetter, And I just really enjoy the song, but they didn't have such an easy time recording this one. They basically recorded it somewhere between 50 and 70 times. And they weren't even happy with the, with the final version. That's very strange, but it does. It's not surprising once you when you learn that and then you listen back and it does seem a little more engineered than the other songs. Uh, I I agree. It is probably the most engineered song on on the album. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Candidly, you know, I. I, I like the song. It's it's a good song, but it is it falls into that category for me of one of those songs where I've definitely heard it enough, and you know I recognize that it's it's good, but I'm not. I don't get excited to hear it uh, when it comes on. So that brings us to track three, alive, and and I'll start here, where similar to Evenflow, a song that you know you've heard even more often perhaps than than even flow but i never get tired of hearing this song no it's an amazing song um and it's it's very much um a a song that you know while while it's about this odd you know relationship and you know the the story of 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 the son finding out out about the father and the weird relationship with the mother 
you know, the, just the, you know, I am alive affirmation and whatnot. Just it's, it's a powerful song. Well, it's one of the, my favorite stories about this album and Pearl Jam and, and is, is about this song and, and how Eddie talks about in writing it, it came from a dark place, you know, and as you mentioned, uh, as you told us in the Mamasan uh, segment, you know, it's not a happy song, but Eddie talks about how the way the audience reacts to it and how it has become a, an, an anthem of empowerment and how it just like completely. It, it flipped. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it completely flipped and it flipped for him. And that's so cool where, you know, you create something from a certain place, but at the end of the day, when you make art, it's the, the people consuming it are going to get out of it. Not necessarily what you were putting out, but the way it impacts them is completely personal. And when it comes to alive, it's just, and just an incredible song of empowerment when it really was not necessarily intended that way. Oh, great. So, so track four, why go? You get the heavy drum and guitar intro and just a, a rock song. And yeah. just, I think an awesome rock song. It's a, it's a great rock song. I definitely don't get tired of hearing this one. We've got track five, black. Black for me tone um, with that tinny guitar entry really gives me like a flashback to wish you were here from pink floyd where they and where they enter into it where it's like you're listening to the music on a radio um and it, it has a similar type feeling in the entry so I, I love the entry of black and it's just a phenomenal song it's about first relationships and it is just a powerful song okay so now we're at track six and jeremy and I'm going to put Jeremy, I don't know, this might even be even flow times two for me. You know, I, I again, recognize that it's a, it's a good song and, and I'm definitely, I've had my fill of it. What do you so think Jer about but Jeremy? Jeremy's, Jeremy, Jeremy's another one that it's, you know, it's very much like a, a John Lennon writing experience. He, you know, got, got a, mm -hmm. a, a new, you know, newspaper article, wrote, wrote the song about a, a you know, what happened to a young boy based upon being bullied in school and whatnot. And he, and he wrote this story and it's, I think it's a powerful story, whether, whether you feel like the song is overplayed or whatnot. I mean, the video and the song, it was a powerful song and a powerful video. Um, and it really gave voice to people who were being bullied. And, and I feel like it's maybe an underappreciated song for a song that's played so much. That's fair. I really was commenting on how I feel when it's coming on, but as a song and its impact goes, it's certainly hard to top. Uh, and this was a song, as we mentioned before, they actually got nominated for a Grammy uh, yep. for. So, and and uh, they actually did two videos for for Jeremy. The one the one that ultimately you wound up seeing on MTV, but originally Epic didn't want to pay for the video, and they actually started doing a, a, another video. And I, I think there's if I can find the link to the original, I'll I'll, I'll post it along with the stuff that we. We have cool. All right, so now that this brings us to the the first of a couple of songs that I don't particularly care for. So tell me what you think about Oceans. So Oceans is kind of a a, a shift. Uh, so you you go into kind of a very almost power ballady, you know, just mellow type song. And, and personally, I love it, but it's 
it's a very different feel on the album. And I, I would agree. There's a few songs in this next grouping where you've got a very, very different feel. And I actually, I don't know about the layout going from oceans to porch to garden. Um, it's, 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 it's an odd pairing of those three songs in a row um, mm-hmm. where I, I feel like you get this kind of ballady song about, you know, the currents and shifting and whatnot in oceans and then you go to a banger as the next song. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. a really kind of interesting dynamic. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. That that was actually what was bugging me was porch being placed between oceans and garden. It I just I, I couldn't understand it. But maybe you know they're they're certainly great artists and have forgotten more than I'll ever know. But it just doesn't work for me personally. So, yeah, so that brings us to porch, which you know it's a simple simple song but man it's a banger it is a banger it's a freaking awesome song um you know it starts off punchy guitar right you know rocket ship right out of right out of the gate and i you know i i agree and and you know everything i've heard read um and all the quotes 10 is their least favorite album that they've done they Mm -hmm. didn't know what they were doing i mean we just talked about the fact that they were just brand new as a band so i don't think they knew what they were doing as far as laying an album out as, as they do now, like, you know, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying they didn't know what they were doing. Maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but they, they're not as good at laying out an album in 10 as they are in their later albums. And I think that, you know, they, they had an opportunity to maybe lay out those songs a little better, a little differently. And and I think putting porch between oceans and garden is just kind of an odd placement. Yeah. And maybe that speaks to what we were talking about before, where they weren't even that serious about this album. You know, it was almost a means to an end. So I wonder if that played a part in that as well. So that brings us to the aforementioned garden. Very mellow, very ballady. Yeah, no, I agree. And then, you know, tell me about Deep. Deep goes back to another, you know, rock type vibe. And I think, you know, when when I'm listening to that and then, you know, I'm I'm connecting back to the the albums that I listened to at the time where they came out shortly thereafter, Deep and I listened to Stone Temple Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots sounds like Deep. Like, mm. like the majority of Stone Temple Pilots music sounds like deep. Interesting. I got to uh, check that out. And, and I love Stone Temple Pilots. They're phenomenal. And I think they're underappreciated in their own. But I, I feel like now I can kind of connect with where people say they're derivative. That song definitely gives me a, oh, all right. I see where, I see where that comment came from. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is, you know, just a nine minute track and it's release. And I'll tell you, I don't know how I felt about this before seeing them live but after seeing them do release live it's it's all i it's what what i hear when i hear it in the studio version is i hear the live version and it's amazing it's it's a meditation um it it is it is truly a rock meditation Uh, it's something where again i go back to the pink floyd analogy they have a way of and I wouldn't have made this connection without all of the albums I've listened to over the past mm-hmm. years. There is a component of what they do that really ties together with this easy, mellow, meditative type quality that is very analogous to Floyd. And Release is a phenomenal track. But I agree, hearing it live took it even to the next level mm-hmm. for me. Like I, 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 I loved it on the album when I heard them do it live. I'm like, whoa, Yeah, I got to listen to that again. That is just amazing. It definitely knocked my socks off. All right, so that's the track review. So everyone, you know what comes next after we 
walk through the tracks, we do the song draft. So, so Tone, can I before we get to the song draft, can, can I just take us on a little sidetrack? So, I think one of the things that I now have a better appreciation for with Pearl Jam is the fact that how comfortable they are in their own skin and the things that they've done along the way to stay comfortable in their own skin. When you look at the bands of that time, the grunge bands, and I'll point to four of them, right? Pearl Jam, obviously, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. You know what the common denominator for the other three are? Mm. Their lead singers killed themselves. Oh my goodness. Okay. So Pearl Jam clearly is doing something right. And I think, you know, a lot of what I've heard in 20, the documentary and in other interviews and documentaries that I, I've listened to is they didn't make it about becoming rock stars. They, they really just, after 10, they slowed down and they, they didn't do as many interviews and they, they did things differently and it allowed them to be the band that they are. Um, and, and maybe that's why you and I didn't connect with them as much in, in, in the aughts because they weren't out there quite as much, but the super fans really know the history and what's, what's out there. And I'm, I'm sorry, I missed it. Yeah. You know, lots of music artists talk about, you know, making the focus, the music, these guys really lived that value. Yeah. hundred percent. So sorry, sorry to take a little sidetrack, but I, I just, it, it's something that just has jumped out at me and listening to this. For sure. Okay, so song draft, do we need to recap how the song draft works for folks? I think it makes sense. So every week, Tony and I, being as competitive as we are, we like to put a little head-to-head challenge together. And what we do is the album that we listen to, we take turns picking a roster of songs from the album that we, we choose. One of us goes first, and then we alternate picks. And at the end... We each have half of the album that are our own rosters. And we put our rosters head to head and we each think we can pick the better roster of songs. And that is our song draft. And that's what we've done in all of our album episodes. And we're looking forward to doing it in season two. Indeed. And this year, I'd like to propose a change. Uh, it's, it's a very minor one, but on albums where we have an odd number, I think we should just cut off the last song and just make it even i'm completely fine with that i think yeah. that makes sense um it doesn't it, it yeah i mean the last the last song is the last song period so yeah, yeah that's fine okay so uh last year what we did was we took turns picking the albums that we would talk about and the person who picked the album the other person got to pick first this year we collaborated on the list so we're just going to do a coin toss each week to see who gets to pick first. Well, let's talk this through for a minute. We agreed on coin toss. Should we do a coin toss each week or should we do a coin toss for the first week and then just alternate from there? Oh, that's a great question. I was thinking coin toss. I mean, as much as I love the sound effect of flipping the coin up in the air and me dropping it on the floor and whatnot, you know? Yeah. Maybe we should just do the uh, one coin toss, but I was thinking every week. What do you think? I was, I was too, but I'm thinking we should just probably do the one. All right. So this, this is a super important coin toss then. It it is. It just (laughs) adds the, adds the heightened drama. Okay. I have the official coin. I'm, I'm showing Uh it to you on, on our, our camera. You can see the heads, you can see the tails. All right. It's not a fake coin tone. I'm going to let you call it in the air. Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. Tails. It is tails. You have first pick or second pick your choice. All right. I'm going to go with alive. 
I am going to go with black. I'm going to go with once. And I am going to go with Jeremy. Hmm. Now this is where the gamesmanship comes in. I have a different song ranked higher, but I think I'm going to take even flow at this spot. <laughs> the song you said you don't like. I love it. I love it. I, <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't like it. I said no, I'm you done did. No, you did. hearing you, it. You did. You did. You said you don't want to hear it anymore. That translates yeah. to you don't that's, like it. Uh, well, then you're, that's lost in translation. All right. You're up. Uh, uh, that's what I heard. Um, all right. I'm going to go with release. Ah, oh, damn. That's the problem with us talking about the song because then uh, we uh, kind of give away I, I some ha- intel. So I'm going to tell you very, very clearly. I had release as my number six song. I just picked it as number six. So oh, I had it as my number six song. <laughs> so I guess I could have taken it earlier, but you, but you, you 100%, hundred percent. You, you one hundred percent. Well, if you had taken, if you had taken release, I would have taken even flow. You took even flow. Uh-huh. There you go. Okay, I'm going to take why go. Yep, that was my number seven as well. So uh, I'm going to go with Porch. And then I'm going to go Deep. Wow. It's pretty much the, exo- the exact order I had them in. <sighs> Coin toss. Uh, I- I'm going to go with alert. Garden. I- I'm going to go with Garden at 10. This song's not going to make or break. Uh, oh, it is. Win. It is. I just won. <laughs> 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 so Oceans is why you won? No, I picked I picked Garden at number at number ten. I, I know, not I, picking I, Oceans is why I won. There you go. There you have it. Uh, okay, so that is the song draft. We would normally recap last week's results, but this is episode one of season two, so no results to report. I guess that ends that segment, and now we move on to our final thoughts. Uh, we we do, Tone. We move on to final thoughts, and I th- I think um, it's an opportunity for us to talk about what we knew, where and where we landed, and anything else. So, well, I'll tell you. I'll start and just say that prior to it's not really exploring this album because I think part of why we did this album first is because we just saw that show, and again, thanks to uh, Rick for inviting us. Uh, to join him and Dave for suggesting it. So shouts to my bros. Huge, huge thank you to, to, to Rick for inviting us. He, uh, that, that was a very cool move and it was a tremendous show. Tremendous show. And that was really the inspiration for why uh, we're doing this album here. Uh, and I'll say that what I knew going in was that they were a long lasting, incredibly popular with their loyal fan base uh band but i hadn't really revisited their music and uh listening to 10 and and researching uh the band and researching the making of this album really gave me a new appreciation for both pearl jam and this album so i i will uh say that seeing them live took them to another level for me so mm-hmm. I had listened to 10 a few times in doing prep for this episode. I had listened to a few of the other albums as well. And I really had pretty quickly connected with, wow, um, these guys are better than I remembered. And 
I really probably underrate them as far as you know where I put them on the the, the Mount Rushmore uh, of '90s rock and rock period from '90 on. I probably um, was underrating them where they are. Then going to see them live, this is a group of guys who love playing music. Mm-hmm. They just love playing music. They create a different set list every night. No matter what show you go see for Pearl Jam, you're seeing a different show. They love music. They love their fans. They're artists. And I am so appreciative and I'm so thankful, really thankful to Rick for in- inviting us, really thankful for the opportunity to, to have seen them live. I will 100% go see them live again. They've jumped up in my lexicon of artists that I would say are favorites and, and top. I am just blown away with how amazing they are. I think that m- maybe some of where I put Pearl Jam in my mental box in the past was some of the copycat singing from other singers with Vetter and and some of the the vocal affectations and you know I remember I don't know if you remember MTV Celebrity Deathmatch mm-hmm. uh, you know with with uh, the Creed lead singer and, yeah. and Vetter <laughs> you know uh, you know some of that put them in a little bit of a box for me and they did not belong there and just an amazing amazing group the fact that each of them in what they do. Vetter's vocals and songwriting are just spectacular. The musicality and the instrumentation from each of the different members of the band, that was one of the best live shows I've ever seen in my life. And just an amazing, amazing show. Amazing show. You know, McCready with the playing the guitar behind the back, doing the Jimi Hendrix licks and, and whatnot. Really, I have an incredible new perspective on Pearl Jam. And I'm thankful that we did them for this episode. So what do you rank this album on your famous top 500 list? So when I had re-listened to it, um, it cracks my top 50. So it is number 46 on my top 500. I, I think it's a, just a phenomenal album. And I know it's not their favorite album, but as, a, as far as debut albums go, it's a pretty damn amazing debut album. Yeah, you know, that's funny you mentioned the debut aspect of it because a common theme that, you know, has it's it's kind of a trope or it's kind of trite is that uh, bands spend, you know, a lifetime, you know, preparing or writing songs or material for that first album. And in fact, <laughs> nothing could be further from the truth for these guys. Yep. No, agreed. And the other thing, Tone, and we talked about it, is the whole that Seattle art scene. I, I now have such a better understanding of what it was and how it came to be and, and and how collegial it was and how like these bands really did support each other. And, and it wasn't, you know, you know, trying to drag each other down. They went to each other's shows. They were each other's fans. And, you know, the, the way that this band came together is, is amazing. And I, I read a quote from, from Vetter about the name Pearl Jam. Cause I, I was like, how the heck did they go from Mookie Blaylock to Pearl Jam? And this quotes from 1992. He said, the best justification for our band's name is in reference to the pearl itself and the natural process from which the pearl comes, taking excrement or waste and turning it into something beautiful. This is how our band began. And you think about the history of all of these different parts and how they came together. And you know, I don't want to say thrown away pieces, but pieces that didn't fit elsewhere. And it became this just spectacular band. You know, Bill, I think that's a pretty good place for us to wrap up this episode. What do you think? I agree, Tony. Why don't we end today and we'll, let's talk about what we're doing next. So next week's episode is going to be another one of my favorite albums. I know you you 
appreciate this band as well. And specifically, we're doing it because there's the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert is coming up on September 27th this week. Uh, so we are doing the Foo Fighters, the color and the shape as our next album. Yeah, you know, and everything that you just said about Pearl Jam feels like it applies to the Foos as well. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to uh, explore that album uh, next week. Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure. We'll see you next week. Until next time. Thank you, everybody. 